First reading this morning is from Zechariah chapter 6, and it's on page 671 of the Church Bibles. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozakah. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. The second reading is taken from the book of John, chapters 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all from the temple area. Before both sheep and cattle he scattered, the coins of the money changes and overturned their tables. To those who sold Doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remember that it, that it is written, zeal for those who will consume me. Then the Jews demanded, of him, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what had 
what he had said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. I speak to God. Thanks, Graham, and thanks, Anna. Uh, I'd encourage you um, to flick back to our reading from Zechariah. Uh, that's where we're going to be picking up from. Uh, if you're, you're new or just visiting amongst us, you're very welcome. It's great to have you. It's, uh, it's one of those long weekends. I'm hearing coughs of sickness all around. There's, there's dark skies. There's hints of rain. There's people away on a long weekend. All sorts of distractions to, uh, to keep us away from the great privilege of hearing the word of God. And so we're going to pray in a moment uh, that we will hear clearly what God has to say to us. We're, as I say, we're picking up in a series in the book of Zechariah. Uh, a book that encourages us to lift our eyes from this situation to something greater, uh, to the greater work that God is doing. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for your promises, for your unfailing justice, your unending grace. We thank you that when you make a promise, you keep it, uh, that the faithfulness of you is great. Uh, Father, thanks that this morning we've had the opportunity to sing and praise your faithfulness. Uh, and we ask that as we turn and uh, look at your word more closely, we will be reminded of how you keep your promises uh, and how we can build our lives upon that. Father, by your spirit, uh, work in us powerfully, we pray. Amen. Uh, just moments ago, um, we all agreed to something. Uh, we agreed that we just read from the very word of God, and we actually agreed that that was a good thing. We said thanks for it. Uh, it's something we do regularly. Um, but the danger is we can forget what that actually means. What, what does it mean for us to take God at his word? Now, how would you show that you believe what God says? How would you show that you think it, it's not just what he says, but it's actually genuinely good? I reckon there's one easy way to tell. You look at your life and you see how do his promises shape your plans? You know, how, how does the goodness of God's word take effect in your priorities? That's how you can tell if you really believe it. So across the, the harbour at the uh, Australian Maritime Museum, there's the Welcome Wall. I don't know if you ever stopped in and had a look at it, but you, you see list after list of names and families and individuals, name after name after name, of people who've migrated here. Uh, people who, who believe the promise of a better life. And what do they do? They planned accordingly. Uh, people like the New Yen family, they arrived in Sydney in 1981. Uh, if you want to go and look their name up, it's panel 10, column 1, line 5. Uh, their inscription, uh, written by later family members, reads, They are Vietnamese boat people who left their motherland with a daughter and two sons in search of a free society, society of equality, tolerance and the respect of all human rights, and their family has been successful in creating new lives and contributing their best to Australia. So how do... How can we see that the New Yens believed a promise? Because uh, they planned, they acted, they changed their priorities. Now, in 6 verse 9 of Zechariah, the word of the Lord again comes to Zechariah. And we need to ask ourselves, um, if his word is good, how is the promise that we'll see contained in there, how does it actually touch our plans and priorities? How does it shape the way you make your ambitions and goals? Now, in 520 BC, um, God was first speaking through Zechariah, um, and he was speaking to a group of people who were uh, returned exiles, and they'd come back to a fairly disappointing scene in Jerusalem. Uh, Judah, the, the place they returned, it was, it was politically ineffectual, it was socially divided, uh, it was economically frail. 
Uh, it was just a massive disappointment to be there. Uh, and the people then had lost sight of God's priorities. You know, they were more concerned with, with putting the finishing touches on their home renovations than, than rebuilding the house of God, the temple. And so God calls them to action. Uh, and he does it by giving them, first of all, a promise of the great thing he will do and how that should shape them as people and create their purpose. Uh, running over the details of the passage, um, it's simple enough, though, that the strangeness of the words, can, I think, can throw us. Um, in verse 10, Zechariah is called to collect some silver and gold from Heldai, Tobiah and Jediah. Um, they're guys who just recently arrived from Babylon. Uh, they're, they're most likely bearing gifts from the, the wealthy Jewish community who remain in the comforts of Babylon. Uh, and on that same day, he was meant to dash off, take the silver and gold, get a craftsman, turn it into a crown. And then he had to go and give the crown to a high priest. Uh, and in verse 14, he takes the crown back uh, because the crown was always more about putting it on display, a memorial for others. So it was a, it was a physical reminder of God's promise. So in verse 15, all this action was, was we're setting up a promise, we're putting a physical reminder so that their priorities would get shifted, so that they'd get on and obey. Uh, now, I'm aware this is two and a half thousand years ago it was first said, and it's really tempting to think, no, no, here's the word of God for them, what's it got to do with me? You can still feel distant. We sang before, great is your faithfulness. When God makes a promise, it stands, and the promises of the living God still matter to us today. Okay? And as we see his promise, we're going to look at that more closely We'll start seeing how your plans and your priorities need to change because of it. So first we're going to look at the promise, but I'm going to stop. Who's really cold? Great. Hang on. I don't have any blankets. Uh, so if it gets colder than that, um, I'm afraid you'll just have to snuggle up to the person beside you. Um, hopefully you know them well, otherwise you will by the end. Uh, Let's look first of all at these promises. Uh, the promise, the big promise, is that there will be one priest who will rule and build God's temple. Verse 12, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and he will sit on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony or peace between the two. So the big issue in their time, um, rebuilding the temple. Uh, it had been destroyed, it had been pillaged 70 years earlier by the Babylonians and God is saying to these people who've come back to a disappointing place that getting the temple sorted is actually more important than rebuilding your walls and fortifying it. It's even more important than you fixing and finishing off the home decorations. Okay, so we might wonder, really? Is it that important? You know, why does the temple matter so much? Because I, I suspect when we hear the word temple, what we think is fancy church building. Um, but it's not. <laughs> they don't equate. Um, the temple, uh, unlike every church building we go past, the temple was this symbol of God's glorious presence and rule. Uh, a unique one. Uh, all the world was God's and no building could contain him, but, but God had honoured the Jews by saying, I'm going to dwell with you, I'm going to live amongst you and no one else. Uh, you know, we might get excited at the times that the, the Prime Minister uh, has visited our church and the, the Governor-General, she joined us again for, for Good Friday. and that's A little bit exciting. 
you know, quite frankly, um, our excitement is fairly feeble compared to the excitement that, was, that should have been surrounding the temple. You know, the temple was the glory of God and his presence in one unique place here on earth. Yeah, Jerusalem was nothing without the temple. The temple was nothing without God's presence there. But when, when the Lord was present in his temple, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the centre of the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah, city walls and, and home decorations need to drop on the to-do list because this is the real glory. And so in verse 12, God makes a promise the temple will be rebuilt. There will be something again. The glorious ruling presence of God will be among them again. But the strange bit is, it's going to be done by just one figure. You know, there's this little twist in the tale that we may not have noticed. That the crown is unexpectedly put on a priest's head. See, in Israel's history, there was a distinction. There was kings who God ruled through, and there were priests who people gained access back to God despite their sin through. Okay? Different roles. And unfortunately, at points, the two officers conflicted, and there was kind of a destabilised process of relating to God. In Zechariah's time, there was Zerubbabel from the kingly line uh, and there was Joshua from, who was the high priest. And what we expect is high priest will put on his turban, uh, the, the governor will be crowned, but, but that doesn't happen here. In Zechariah's account, um, Zerubbabel doesn't even get a mention. Instead, it's, it's the high priest who takes the crown. And it's the high priest who, in verse 13, is clothed with majesty and enthroned. And there's this confusing language of the branch. Uh, this is kind of kingly language. It was used before the exile in, in Jeremiah 33, that in those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. David was the great king. And, and he will do what's just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. So it's kingly language and, and the optimism of a king who will rule properly. And, and yeah, Zerubbabel was the guy who oversaw the rebuilding of a, a temple that lasted until AD 70. You know, he was in one sense a branch, but, but Zechariah's twisting it. He's going, you know, in Zechariah 3, it was, it was Joshua who was the high priest who was called a branch. It was him who was plucked from the embers. What's God doing here? He's intentionally confusing it so that we will see the roles will merge. That the crown is taken away then, though, from Joshua. It's not left on him permanently because he's speaking symbolically. There's going to be one greater who will actually do all this properly. You know, not Joshua, not Zerubbabel. They're not the complete deal. God is promising there will, though, be one day a, a priest king who will do both, one who will rule but also create the access, that there is only one point, a harmonious point, where, where we can go and be cleansed and ruled and have the presence of God within us, the true branch, the Lord our righteousness. Yeah. And it's in Jesus that God keeps that promise of, of that perfect priest king, the one who builds the temple. It, it's Jesus who establishes the, the presence and rule of God completely in this world, in our lives. Yeah, Hebrews, uh, read it later on, book of Hebrews, it explains how these two roles merge together, how he is the king, the priest, even the sacrifice. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 talks about how Jesus is our righteousness, that branch language, that in him we are right and acceptable before God. You know, uh, we, we read, Graham read for us uh, just before, but from John's Gospel, Jesus, he stood outside the temple that Zerubbabel had built and he said, oh, destroy, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. But the temple he was talking about 
you know, where the, the presence and rule of God was, wasn't in that building, it was in him. He was talking about his body. You know, both in his physical form, but also those grafted into him by faith. So Jesus uses the language of branch and he, and he takes it. And if you know John 15, he plays it. And he says, I, I am the vine and you, if you put your trust in me, are the branches. You are connected to me. You share in me. The presence and rule of God is therefore in you. Uh, in Ephesians 5, Colossians 1, you can look up later, um, the, the body of Christ is the church. Uh, not the building, the people. Yeah, so in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it, it talks about the gathering of Christian believers are the temple of God. You know, we, as we get together, here is where God is present. Here is where he rules. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, the agent sharpens it up and says, you individually, if you know Jesus, you are the temple of God for God's spirit's in you. That's where the rule and presence of God are. See, we, we don't need to go and look for a crown on display like they did in Zechariah's day to see the presence and rule of God because we see that ongoing living work as we look around. We see it in the, certainly in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but, but we see it in, in the persecuted church of China that, that survived, in fact, it even bloomed under communism. You know, we see it in, in Africa. We had a little reminder of Africa. It's the most Christian continent in, in the world despite hardship and poverty and conflict. Yeah, and we see it here when we look around and we see other people who reject idols of, of comfort and wealth to belong to Jesus. See, God has kept that promise. The, the one place, the one temple, the priest king, where he combines his presence and rule and creates harmony, peace, in the language of Zechariah 6.13. You know, I want to say, this kind of promise changes our lives. Not on the kind of surface level of kind of, uh, you know, what will we do with a particular home renovation? What am I going to cook for dinner? You know, it's not that kind of promise that we go, no, no, but at the fundamental level. You know, how you understand yourself, how you deal with your moral failings, how, how you make the big decisions of life are transformed by the one priest and king, the place where God's presence and rule are, the Lord Jesus. See, on one side, it, it clarifies where you need to go and look for help. So I think instinctively we, we all think we're you know, naturally priest kings. We think we can do it all on our own. Uh, there's a, a new phenomenon apparently called cyberchondria. Uh, it's, yeah, don't you love living languages? You know, they're always coming up with new words. Um, yeah, it's hypochondria for the internet age. Uh, so people get themselves into all sorts of trouble making poor self-diagnosis because, quite frankly, the problem with people, you know, we all like wearing our little crowns, making our own decisions, and we think all that information on the net, ah, oh, I can do it myself. You know, I know it all. Uh, you know, and it plays that instinct that, that we have, that we, we've got this kind of intuitive priestly task going on. We think we can solve our problems. We can deal with it. But the work of Christ, the one priest king, reminds us, you know, you have limits. You've got to hand your crown in. You've got to go to him and seek a cure for your soul. And on the other side, it, it, it kind of, I suppose, clarifies, it creates harmony. Uh, it clarifies any confusion about how faith and obedience might fit together. You know, it makes clear you can't have, have the priestly benefits of forgiveness without accepting the kingly rule and his authority. You know, and I think we've got to be aware of just how tempted we are, how, how natural we find it to kind of separate those two. 
You know, we find it so easy to delight in being forgiven and kind of going, isn't that great? God accepts me. And we find it really easy to overlook those parts of life where we're unwilling to let him rule. And we want to attempt to, you know, we've attempted to divide the two when, no, no, there is one priest and king. I was reading a review uh, this week of a, a fictional biography of Jesus. Um, somebody sat down and, and selectively cut out the bits of uh, you know, the Jesus story that the author didn't like and came up with his own kind of version. And, it, and I suppose reading that just made me aware of just how content we are with compromise and how surprised we get by people who take radical obedience seriously, uh, even in the Christian community. Yeah, I think as a, as a broader Christian community, whether it's through lack of teaching or an unwillingness to count the cost, you know, there, are, there are lots of Christians I know in, in de facto relationships and, and living with their partner or, or sexually active outside God's design for marriage. And I realised, I suppose, this week how I'm, I'm less shocked by that than I am by this young man who, who came to me to get married, and yet he was so overwhelmed uh, with conviction to change his lifestyle uh, that he ended up you know, the, the relationship ended because uh, the girl he was with was not so convicted. Uh, you know, I was more shocked by him, someone who took obedience seriously, someone who recognised a priest and king act together than by the compromise that becomes normal. Of course, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? You know, God promised there will be one priest, one king, and he will establish the temple. He will put his rule and his presence amongst us. And you can't have the forgiveness without the call to obedience. And yet if we take it up seriously, what harmony it creates, not only in his role but our life, takes away that conflicted thing of trying to live one way and at the same time live his way. Now that's the glorious presence in your life. You know, the promise of God is he will establish his presence and rule and he's done it. But do you believe it? Are you thankful for the goodness of that promise? I asked you before, the evidence is going to be in how the promise changes your plans and priorities. So look to your plans and priorities. That's going to be the clue. Now, in Zechariah's time, the promise had to change their priority. The promise meant they had to join the work of building. So in verse 10, the gold and the silver is this collection from the wealthier remnant back in Babylon. You know, 70 years is a long time. That's how far away uh, they were in exile. You kind of go, that's a couple of generations. Think back, you know, if you can imagine if, if your family are recent migrants to Australia um, or even you know, migrants to Sydney, um, can you imagine giving up the comfortable life you've established here to go back to their origins? You know, for, for, for the people of Zechariah's time, you know, you can imagine that the, the exiles who'd built a good life back in Babylon, they wouldn't want to take the kids out of Babylon grammar. You know, they, they wouldn't want to give up the weekenders on the banks of the Kibar River, would they? You know, for a backward city like Jerusalem? No, no, so we'll send some money. But God expects even more than that of them, to, to get engaged with his priorities. Uh, in verse 14, the crown is taken back as a, as a memorial. It's, it's put in the, the under-construction temple you know, as a sign, a promise. Look to this. This is what I'm doing, says God. But therefore, as you look to that, it's a call. You get in line. You start making my priority yours. So in verse 15, the expectation is that those who are far off will come and join in doing the same work as God. 
Now, that, that means, yes, those who are in exile in Babylon, but even people from all nations. He's, he's really carefully echoing the... He's playing with the language from um, chap, chapter 2, verse 11, that many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and they will become my people and I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. It's a call for everyone. And there's an expectation at the end in verse 15 of obedience. Not that the promise of God's going to fail if people don't join in, but you know what? If you choose not to join in, you miss out on the benefits. So God, when he saves people, he does it purposefully so that they can join and participate in, in restoring his presence and rule in the world. That's what he saves people for. So when he saved his people in Exodus, um, he said to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go that they could come and worship me. Uh, when he saved people in Zechariah's time, yeah, come back so you can build this temple so that people would see my presence and rule. And after Jesus, it's the same, isn't it? You know, the disciples went out and made known God's presence and rule among them. Do you believe the promises of God? Well, you'll know because you'll see how important, what priority it is for you to build his temple. I don't mean, you know, arm up and go and fight for Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean building a glorious, you know, building on earth. The temple he builds is his body believers, demonstrating his rule. And we need to, to join, we need to make that our priority if we believe the promise of God. Now, what a tragedy it would be if Jesus looked on us and he saw this massive imbalance between how much we knew of his promises and how little it shaped our priorities and plans. You know, we need to invest in and make our project to see the rule of God restored on earth. You know, we've got to prioritise building up other Christians. But by the gifts that he has given us, we need to speak and act so that the people who are sitting next to you are more securely trusting Christ. Yeah, and we need to prioritise um, those who don't know the promises of God hearing of Christ's priestly rule. We need to call them to join. Yeah, and we should expect, you know, if it's anything like Zechariah's time, it's going to be two things. It'll be costly, uh, but it'll be, it'll be all-inclusive. Yeah, it will be costly. It costs them silver and gold. You know, if we trust the promise of God, we will, we'll financially invest in seeing his temple built. Don't, don't mishear me. It's not a call for a building fund. I'm not saying you need to give more to church. I am saying you need to think about how we should expect to think about how our money can be used best to see his kingdom better known. Changes our priorities and plans. You know, there's a great debate. We had a fair trade market uh, uh, yesterday. I know there's this wonderful debate going on in the Christian community where some are really pro the fair trade market as a great act of using your money well. Others kind of go, no, no, it's tokenistic and it actually distracts people from, from the big issues because they just kind of get lulled into inactivity. What I think is beautiful about the debate is people are thinking hard about what will it cost me to actually advance the kingdom of God, to make God's priorities mine. You know, it's, it's a choice not to just to invest in the super fund and the second property that's not going to last, but build something that will last. And it's an all-inclusive activity. You know, this is, this is for all, those in Babylon, those far off. Yes, Jesus established the temple, but, but he doesn't just work through a priestly class. You know, there is none of, none of Christ's churches throughout the world are a church with a minister. They are all churches of ministers. Yeah, it's not 
just the work of those paid to share of it. But no, no, God has placed you in that particular seat so that you might care for the people in the row in front and behind. God has placed you in your particular neighbourhood and your workplace that you might share of his kingdom with those around you. See, we've heard the promise of God today. He is building a great temple, one that will last, and there is only one who will build it, and yet he calls us to share in his work. Do you believe it? Consider your plans and your priorities. That's how you'll know. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he became sin, that he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you that uh, he is both our king and our priest. We thank you that he has established your temple, your rule on this earth. And Father, we pray that you would help us to make uh, your promises our priorities, that in every part of our lives we would be gripped with your great project and that you'd be using us to, uh, to build and make clear your presence and power and rule on this earth. We pray that your kingdom might come and that we might be doing your will. In Jesus' name, amen.